0: Ken Bosworth is And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it.
1: 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all.
0: We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet?
1: You know, sure, you sure uh, uh, order them as they come in, kind of fulfill yeah. the orders as they come in. I can just do that, and we can That's have
0: fantastic. a little extra, you know. So, um, okay, listen to this. This is really interesting. Um, So it's about you and your your skills. So um, my friend Michelle, who's at um, school with me, she said, can I see, she's trying to create a a pitch deck. And I said, sure. She said, you know, let me see yours. And then she tried to redo one of hers. She was like, I don't know what Gina is, how she's able to do a pitch deck like that. But she could not she was like it's the hardest thing." like she was on she was like gina should have a degree in graphic design and i was like look i don't know i am this yeah so so you that's cute yeah i don't care what she that other bitch said
1: was she using keynote because i have to say
0: i feel all the mac things make it so easy like even i moved Oh, she was okay. Oh, yeah. she was like, "There's no way I can't. I I can't understand how Gina did what she did." And I was like, "Look, dude, she's 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 a genius." But I, I I don't know what else to say. And she was like, "I I I I tried, and I and mine looks like literally the worst."
1: Well, you here's the thing about any of those things. I mean, it, and it relates to the podcast too. I mean, I, I've been trying to make a podcast for like seven years. So I've, it's not like I'm going, coming to GarageBand for the very first time. But I think that the, for me anyway, the challenge of seeing something, a skill set that you have to learn at my age. I mean, it's one thing when I'm 18 and like, oh, you know, lear, le- learning a new thing and your brain is so supple and you're so ready for it. But to face the mountain of learning a whole new thing that you don't know anything about is so overwhelming. It's just so emotionally overwhelming that it, for me anyway, it can impair my ability to actually integrate the information if I'm just o- emotionally overwhelmed by having to
0: learn learn something. I, th- I think you're right. I think that that's a huge part of 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 that, and that's like what I faced with this paper that I had to write was, yeah, like just. Do it, like just sit down and know that you're. It's not going to be. Just do it, and 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 um, and try. That's the thing. It's like mm-hmm. you. Have, I have to be willing to try and fail, and try and fail, and I think you know. I was thinking about mentorship and like, you know, um, because I applied us to this circle of confusion mentorship thing. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like a good mentor. Right, a good mentor. I was thinking, what am I missing from? And you know, I'm pretty open about. My, I have a an, a mentor that and and uh, that is not working for me. You know, and it's not that she's an evil, horrible person. I don't know her in that way. She could be. I just have no idea. But it's that there is with mentorship. There's um. Whether it's like telling yourself at a girl, you can do this, or a mentor saying, hey, nice work, or someone, you you need that in your life to tackle new things as an older person trying new things. And that's what's missing from a lot of people is they don't have the ability to either say to themselves, hey, keep going, keep going, you can do this. Or they don't have a mentor of some kind saying, nice work, man, You're, you're rocking it, just keep going. It takes, and I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, it like takes so little to, to keep people going.
1: So little. It takes so little. And yet, I, I'm like you, I'm constantly amazed by how much that people miss the mark. And also, how much people think people are oh, worried about praising something too much. Like one of the f- phenomenons in my family is people will only compliment you behind your back.
0: Oh my
1: God. And I don't I don't know <laughs> like I, I don't get it. I don't I don't get it. To me I, I always want to compliment somebody to their face. I I, yeah. I think it's the old school holdover of like spare the rod, spoil the child.
0: My mom was like, you know, you don't you don't want to get too big of a head, but also you don't want to um brag. You don't want to like and and here's the thing, unless you're, I'm, mean, you know, just to be honest, like unless you're a, a fifty to six year old white male, everyone needs praising. They don't need any more praising. They they really don't. But but you can assume that if it, the person is female identifying, that they have not gotten enough praise and it's okay to praise them.
1: Absolutely. Ab- this let, let, let this be a public service <laughs>
0: announcement. If
1: you know somebody who is not a white male, you know, and I'll even say between the ages of 13, <laughs> 95. Okay. Uh, you know, just feel free. Even if it's out of the blue, just feel free to right now, stop what you're doing. Text somebody who fits into this category and say, I just wanted to let you know, I was thinking about you just now. You're doing great. You're doing a great job. Keep it up, right?
0: That would I be mean, so nice. Hearing that from you. I'm like, I am. It's like, it's like <laughs> um, we're so starved for it. And I yeah, and I it's a it's this thing that we talk about, right? Like I was listening to, to us talk and it was like talking about this is a confidence game, right? So you mm-hmm. you 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 Right. We're expected to have all this confidence in order to make it, especially in an in industry like this one, the entertainment industry, and yet we're not given any any praise for keep going. Mm-hmm. So how the hell are you supposed to learn confidence? And no one does, you know, and that's how you end up a drug addict, you know, <laughs> like a drug mm-hmm. addict. Mm-hmm. that You're expected to like be a badass, right? And like fierce and yet not given any praise along the way. It doesn't, that doesn't work. It's also like, you know, it's a reverse manifesto. It's like, <laughs> just be great, but with no help. But what I'm saying is uh, our, our special sauce that Aaron talks about and stuff like that is really special. Like most mm-hmm. people don't get any hits from any queries ever. I mean, what? Yeah. look, we have someone telling us they hate our pitch deck, but send me the script, which any, anyway,
1: I have a theory about that, by the way. I think this is just her. I think this is how she runs game a little bit. Like she negs people. I think, you know, and that probably works a lot because, as we've established, the the, the industry is not t- touchy feely or careful about anybody's feelings in so many ways. So, like, I I think that there, people are really primed to hear, "Well, you suck," but I'll give you a chance, kind of a thing. Which, well,
0: oh, yes. And if for our listeners, I just, I can be transparent about this because I don't, this is not something mm-hmm. to be. So I um, submitted us to uh, a rep and, and uh, for lit representation and sent her the Kiki pitch deck and our great query letter. And sh- And this person literally wrote back, to be honest, I'm not a fan of the pitch deck. Send me the script. Now, I just... I just, on so many levels and i think you're right i think she it's her way of vetting but the thing is she doesn't know what she's talking to because we we do a podcast about lifting people up and being genuine and right. she and and it's the opposite she's doing the opposite
1: and well also she sent it you know 10 seconds after you-
0: <laughs> it, it was literally four minutes or some five minutes and it's yeah. like And and so she just she's not aware of who her her audience is in this particular case. And we're talking here about not needing to sort of, um, yeah, put on airs or be like a tough on purpose. And, you know, she's a female identifying person, I'm pretty sure. And so maybe she's learned that that works for her. It's just good to know that that's not a fit for us. Like, I just started laughing when I saw it because I thought. Wait, it's like, I'm going to punch you in the face and then tell you to ask me out on a date. Well, and of course, the thing is always like, everybody is constantly negging themselves. It
1: just it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary for you to point out something that you don't like, like, by the before I've opened my eyes in the morning, I've identified 10 things about myself that I don't like I I don't, I don't really need somebody else to do it for
0: me. Yeah, she's got the wrong audience. I mean, we're just not twenty five year olds that are yeah. are um she just has look, I'll put it this way, she just hasn't read our manifesto.
1: There you go. Maybe we'll there, you go. It. there you go. There you go. Okay. So uh little side note, I, you know, I, I continue to be annoyed with my own, uh, the de- the deliberative nature of how I talk and how slow it is and how many pauses I take. So I'm very conscious about trying to speed it up, you know, like, <laughs> get to the point. Oh, no. faster. oh,
0: my God. Are you going to be like, and anyway, so then we're like, I'm with Lee today. And you're like, so Lee, here's my, and I'm like, Oh, my God, don't do that. I know. I don't
1: want to do that. But at the same time, I just want to find a way to pick it up. I feel like I'm direct- – when I'm editing, I feel like I'm directing a play going, okay, louder, faster, funnier. Louder, faster, funnier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whatever. I can only do it. I can do it.
0: Hey, let me run this by you. Anyway. so that all aside, let oh.
1: me run by you this um, thing that we started – Started talking about briefly, but it bears further, you know, I don't know, inspection. <clears throat> this recently identified by me a uh, thing that happens in codependency, something I haven't heard talked about very much in codependency, is how it, you know, with um, it within the codependent family system, or whatever it doesn't have to be a family with the system. Um We can all treat each other like shit, but everybody who's outside of the system has to always be given all this reverence and preferential treatment. Like I was I was talking about this with somebody the other day and we were saying like, yeah, it's this thing where People we don't even like, but if, if they're outside of the system, it's, everything has to be constructed around making sure that person is happy, making sure that person's needs are met, making sure we're not, you know, at, to the exclusion, at least it seems to me, to the exclusion of making sure we are meeting our, each other's needs and our own needs and making sure that our, you know, like it sort of dovetails with this idea of why do the assholes always have to get the... You know, and we're we're having this like politically too. Why why is it always our job to take the high road or to to kowtow to somebody else's feelings when no when those same people would never do that for us? I don't I don't yeah. I don't understand it.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I totally get it, and I I mean I'm I'm hearing what you're saying, and I think that it's um we are trying to take. I mean, at the base level, right? We're trying to take care of the abuser. Mm. We, we will do for me, I can say what it is for me, fear, 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 fear. Um, so if I'm afraid of being, we treat each other like, yeah, we treat each other in the system like garbage because we don't matter and we're all in it together and there's some kind of trauma bonding that goes on there. Right. But if some authority figure, whether it's real or imagined comes into the picture, we all don't want to be abused by that person. So we'll do whatever it takes to make them happy. Oh, it's such yeah. garbage. It's so sad. I do it with bosses, with anybody. It doesn't even matter. I'll do it with the the, the building manager at my apartment complex. I mean, so it, it, it's, it's, I think it is, Trying to kowtow to whoever is in charge, right? And when it doesn't happen within the system, and, and someone comes from the outside, we're just so busy beating each other up and being terrible to each other. And then
1: you know, yeah. And it really, I, I find because I I have this dynamic within my family or within close circles, but I also encounter it all the time in less uh, familial circles. Like I, I have a. Um, something that I'm a part of outside of um, my family or friends. And and it's this role where we're all sort of working together. And the other day, uh, we were having this meeting to discuss something. And one of the other members of the group said, you know, uh, this something happened last week. And this other person was very offensive to you. And I just wanted to check in with you because, you know, that was, I I felt offended for you. And before I could respond, this other person starts defending the person who was insulting me, who who was not there, who was not part of the meeting. And she, and she's done it before. And she goes on and on and on. And I go, I'm going to stop you right there. What, what are you doing? (laughs) Like this person, we'll call her Jane, asked me, she was checking in with me about how I feel. It didn't have anything to do with you. Why did you, you know, jump in and start defending Bob, who who's not even here? And did you says, say that? I, I did. I literally Ooh, said that. And I, I said, and she's like, Well, I just didn't want you to feel bad. And I said, Okay, well, I do feel bad. And you you sticking up for this other person doesn't make me feel better. And in fact, it's very invalidating. Yeah, good for you. And she was like, Oh, okay. And, you know, and and i say this with the knowledge that probably everybody in her life has done that to her it's not it's not like she's there's anything wrong with her it's just it's just this way that we get very acculturated to like if you are a kind person it's your responsibility to always tolerate you know the unkind people and i it's wrong headed it's not yeah. the direction i want to be going in in 2021 we'll say it like that
0: oh that's great that's brilliant and i'm so I am so like, I feel so inspired that you spoke up to that person because like we were talking about with parenting, even though I have no kids and I have no idea what that means, but I'm just saying like, like parenting, you, you actually were, it was a teaching moment for her, whether she takes it or not. I mean, it was good for you too, but if I'm, I'm thinking I'm the other person, right. And you stop me and say, actually, you know what, Jen, they, this doesn't involve you in I can let let us take care of it and you you don't have to defend the the person. I I would be I would be really embarrassed, but I would also be like, "Oh my gosh. I'm free. I don't have to stick up for the the person who is the abuser." Right. Right,
1: because that is a huge amount of emotional labor that we do without even really realizing it, I bet. I
0: mean, and it's so pointless and I I know, I mean, it just reeks of 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 uh a, 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 i mean in a grant in the um more extreme example of like uh, yeah defending the domestic abuser like the kid saying but dad didn't mean to hurt you mom like mm-hmm. stop right. yeah. it's like, it's not your job it's not your yeah. job and it's actually It's not fair to anybody that you're doing that. And don't take that on. Don't take that on. Let us have this conversation as painful as it might be, because I think the other thing is like conflict, right? Fear of conflict. So this other person is at all costs, fear of conflict. So they had to step in and like try to fix the the thing. And I can totally relate to that. Like when I were, oh my gosh, it makes you
1: feel so uncomfortable when, and when even
0: somebody even just talks about having conflict with somebody else. And so at my office, I was going to say when I worked at the casting office, you know, in Chicago and I, 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 when there was a conflict and there's always conflict because that's part of life. I I, I didn't realize that. But uh, if there was like um an, an agent that would get upset with the cast, anything, I would have to get up and leave and, and so that I wouldn't. Feel terrible, insert myself. I, I usually am not the inserter. I'm more the just feel like I said in our last podcast, I'm act in. So, like, I would be like, oh, inside. And so I just get up and I take a walk because I'm like, one, this doesn't concern me. Two, everyone's an adult in this room. No one's going to be, there is no danger. I think people are literally afraid of the danger of death or violence or emotional death or some kind of retaliation. So that's why they do it. However, you you saying that to this person was a huge gift. I mean, like, because for yourself and for the whole organization,
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely have to, I think you're not doing any favors for anybody when you have that reaction and then you don't say anything because a, you haven't stood up for yourself. You haven't let that person know what your boundaries are and you haven't reflected to the other people who are in the group. Let's, let's don't have that. Let's don't do that. Let's don't do that particular brand of this sort of dysfunction because, because it doesn't work. And if, if it be the uh, emotional equivalent of, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, this is freeze, you know, freezing when, when I felt she was freezing me by, by saying, you know, and, and it is, I get why it's a self-protective thing for her. She, the people who fear the conflict and who, you know, kind of clam, clam up, even if it doesn't have anything to do with them, I understand that it, it's there for, for really good reasons. But at the same time, when we never tell these other people the way that their words are affecting us, then they never have the opportunity to do it any differently. And who knows, maybe they don't really want to be insulting and they don't have any idea that that's what they're doing. And they
0: never will unless somebody tells them. Nobody calls them on it. So you're doing the Lord's work, if there is a Lord. Uh, um, but And also it reminds me of The Office. It all comes back to The Office when Toby says, Michael is so mean to Toby all the time. And last night he said, you know, we're watching season seven again, and said he says, Michael, words hurt, and we've talked about that. Yeah. Do when he, and it's true it's like we're th- those are hurtful mm-hmm. words and we've mm-hmm. talked about that mm-hmm. and it's like you have to call people on their stuff even if they don't do anything about it it's like you have to speak up you, you know?
1: yeah because at least you can know that you didn't swallow your own thing in the service of somebody who never by the way even knew that you were doing that for them to begin with. okay so i have to ask um so you're watching the opposite office so you're not
0: watching the um Heaven's Gate documentary. God, I wanted to ask you, is it the new one? Is there a new one or is it the old one?
1: Oh, uh, well, I don't know because it's the first one I've ever seen and it's on HBO.
0: Um, I think it's new and I don't think I've seen it and I don't okay. have HBO. So, okay, so, I'll give you my login. Okay. <laughs> right over. My social security number <laughs>
1: so what's interesting i didn't actually really remember anything about that whole heaven's gate situation i vaguely knew that everybody died i remember the photographs or the video of everybody in those weird beds and oh but i didn't know that really what it was about was that he was very crazy and she was too, and the most chilling thing I heard in the interview was uh, they, they went by, Doe, Doe Do and Law and no Doe, Do and Doe, Doe Do, no Doe Do and T Doe
0: and T Doe and T Doe Do, so, Do. right
1: right Doe was the guy and T was the woman yeah so some so she was the psych nurse at the hospital that he ended up in
0: no. No, I did yes,
1: not know that. Ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And so basically, I, they didn't say it exactly like this. In fact, I could have used a lot more detail about this whole situation. But it, the, the image that it gave me is like he got discharged and then she just went with them, And they just started this cult. And the thing that gave me the chills is that somebody who knew T said, everybody talks about Doe and how he, you know, he was the cult leader. But he was just doing what T wanted him to do. I mean, it's a fraud, baby. Exactly. And honestly, what almost every one of these cults also has that. It's also just, it's the woman who you don't hear that much. I mean, wild, wild country. That was very obviously the, you know, but usually it's like, you don't really hear that much about the woman, but she, it's often her thing, right? Her idea, her manipulation.
0: A lot of times it is. And also it's just so brilliant that she was his psych nurse. Are you kidding I, I, me? I
1: mean I mean, um Are amazing. you kidding? Me? I am not kidding you. And so it's the only cult that I haven't come across so far uh that doesn't feel really malevolent, it just feels like these are two very mentally ill people who because of the time, the seventies, uh right, because well, I haven't gotten to the end. I maybe oh. it is,
0: maybe it is really malevolent. Well, I've seen I- like 10 documentaries on – like little documentaries on Heaven's Gate, but I didn't know the psych part. But I – but um, it's interesting. It's the only cult that I know – yes, you are onto something there. It's the only cult I know of where the actual members – seem to be a little more evil than the two people that are at the head. So the members sort of are doing all the weird work for the two and they're just mentally ill. So, which is real crazy because it's like the two people who are running the show are just like sick babies basically. Oh my. So I can't wait for this, this whole pandemic. Oh, it's not going to be over, over, but a vaccine to come out. So you and I can get together and write our next pilot about
1: amen sister amen i've already decided that my first thing i'm gonna do and and i've already got i think i have all the kids on board just have to get aaron on board i want to go to la i want to take a family trip to la uh the kids actually have always wanted to go and check it out and um, because you know all these influencers that they Follow. They all live in LA, so they all have this idea. My kids all have this idea that, like, it's the most amazing place in the world. And I've tried to temper it a little bit by saying, "Well, you know, you're you're seeing like a <laughs> but version, but it is
0: youngest could be an influencer. Like, she I could, think right? she could be, and she... I think she will love it here. I could see her being like, you know, Mom, I'm just gonna stay here. You guys go on back. I got a deal." <laughs> and an agent and a manager i'm just gonna live here on my
1: she, own she watches all these uh youtube things like that and so one day she says i i i think i could do this and i i was all excited about it and i said but what do you do <laughs> like because i listen to these things out of the corner of my ear and I, i i can't follow it i have no idea what's going on and i was what i was trying to get at is what What's the content? Like what do you do? And she said, "Well, you unbox toys." And I said, "Okay, but that that sounds like the whole thing <laughs> is predicated on me buying you a bunch of toys." And she said, "Okay, yeah, that's true." Well, another thing is like these public sort of challenges, like go to the grocery store and and I thought she was going in the direction of like throw all the cereal boxes on the floor. And actually, she never did quite tell me what it was supposed to be, so Anyway, I said, "Okay, well, let's go to the grocery store and I'll videotape you and we'll see where it goes. Maybe we'll we'll do this footage and then something will come out of it." She's all excited. She puts on her cute little outfit, brushes her cute little hair, and I'm filming her and we go in and about 10 minutes in she goes she just looks at me and she goes, "This is so boring." <laughs> yeah. And I said, Welcome to filmmaking kid. yeah <laughs> 90% boring and only 10% fun. Welcome to editing. Welcome to the world of exactly. editing. You yeah,
0: exactly. You know, I mean, I think that if anyone, yeah. Today on the podcast, we have Nick Bowling. Nick Bowling, we was a directing MFA student when we were acting undergrad students and he's um, still directing and he is, has a theater company that has been I think he said almost 25 years keep, they keep going, Timeline Theater Company in Chicago and he's funny, right? He's super he's funny. hilarious and
1: he's got and, great stories, great theater stories so you're going to love it.
0: You're going to love it. Here we go.
1: Congratulations, you survived theater school Woohoo! It, and I think you, I think you may have been like one of the people who really did it right. Boz and I talk about, we don't really remember it. and we It was all like a fog and <laughs> we, we were just all like clinging, hanging on for dear life. But my sense of you from that time is, and maybe it's because MFAs inherently already know a little bit more about what they're going to be doing. But my sense of you is that you always knew exactly what you wanted to get out of theater school. You got it, and then you went on to have the career that you tried to have.
2: You know, I was thinking about this this morning because I was trying to think what do they what will they want to talk about? And this is like the one thing I thought like you're you've you've hit the nail on the head. My undergrad, I I went to school in Washington D.C. for musical theater. You know, it was such a that was such a weird feeling because I was, uh, first of all, trying to figure out if that's, you know, I had this dream of like being, you know, I didn't mean, I, it was so unrealistic. My dream was like to be Gene Kelly. And it was like, well, there already was a Gene Kelly and he's, um, also dead. And, you know, and that style of performance is sort of done. Nobody needs a song and dance man, really so much these days, you know, I mean, right. I, I love one, I'll take one, you know, here and there. But it's a rarity that you really need that person. Anyway, that's kind of what I I went. And then the mix of all the emotions of undergrad, of being away for the first time, being on your own for the first time, not knowing knowing quite what it was that you, for me, that I really wanted and meeting people that changed my life, you know, in that undergraduate experience. And it took me three years after I graduated, two or three years after I graduated to kind of figure out. What I finally realized that I wanted to do I was I was choreographing and uh, and directing in a way certain things even through high school. so that was so but that was always that always seemed like <laughs> what I did sort of just to to um, I don't know, not to get by, it's, it's, there was nobody, nobody else wanted to do those things where I grew up. I mean, they didn't want to be in shows either. So it was like, I (laughs) you were a one man song and
0: dance man.
2: I could have been, I could have been just the one man song and dance man. There were other people, but mostly not a lot of guys, you know? And anyway, so I had that always there. And at some point it hit me like, God, why don't why don't you become a director? But here's the funny thing. I was living in DC at the time and I had only directed like a one act play at one tiny festival. And I applied to DePaul, I applied to like three other schools, and I got turned down at really all of the schools, including DePaul. Um, which is right. Here's a little tidbit. I got turned down at DePaul too, or I got put on the wait list at DePaul because frankly I hadn't done right. it at all. I right. choreographed which is one thing. um, And I was, I, I, again, it was all that dancing sort of um, world that I had kind of grown up in. But um, anyway, so, you know, I, I finally figured that out. I finally then got accepted to Paul, to DePaul, you know, after it was John Bridges who called. And of course was like, you know, Do you want to come here? (laughs) it, It was, it was a conversation filled with, um, three quarters insults, and then about one right. or two things were like. But we had we had to accept you after you know I don't know if he even made a joke about it, but knowing he probably said something like, you know we were trying to keep you on the wait list, but we couldn't keep you on any longer. Something, but anyway, so it all it all uh, worked out, and then I got there, and I I felt so lucky to have been accepted at a school to do the thing I wanted to do, especially when. You know, unlike a young actor, nobody expects a young actor out of high school to have done anything except high school, you know? So I felt really lucky to be there. I was there with two other guys um, my my first year, Eric Kirshner and then another guy. Oh, God, I wish I could remember his name. Um, anyway, but Eric and I became very good. Well, we all three became friends. And the third guy, um, I think, quit halfway through the first year and then Eric quit at the end of the first Whoa. year. So it was, all of a sudden it was just me. And by the way, then all of a sudden I got their scholarship, you know what I mean? So it was like, and, all of a sudden I got, and look, let me say, it still cost a buttload to go there, but I got that scholarship money. It was like, I'm the king of the world, you know, because I made it through I didn't quit or get cut or whatever, you know? And so that's how, so your point is, is absolutely true. I I was there with such a passion, with such a, a a different sense than the first time around. My undergrad, I I was a goofball. I I, I didn't listen. I didn't didn't really. I, I I didn't. I wasn't really there as present as I was in my grad school. I was a sponge for grad school, and I. I the truth is, I what was there at a time that was probably good for me to be there. And I soaked up everything I possibly could. And in many ways, I loved my whole experience. And, but funny is that I know that a a lot of people around me didn't feel that way. Uh, You know, I mean, there were some even at the time that were very vocal about it. I mean, number one, I I don't know if I should be naming names, but number one was um, Sharon. She was like, Sharon Gopher. Sharon Gopher was like somebody that was like, I am not putting up with being cast in the way I'm being cast. Yes. I'm going to create my own show, and I'm going to create my own right. path. And I, so you don't know, in a way, I should say your name because God lover her. Then she, she was the one who was like, "I'm going to determine my path." Right. And in a way, that has become my mantra for theater for everybody that's in the theater. Determine your path. Don't let everybody else around you determine who you are, what you're going to be. And that's very tough to do in our business mm-hmm. because. Actors oftentimes feel like I just have to sit here and wait for someone to tell me what I get to do next rather Mm -hmm. than finding ways to do it. And I'd say, Sharon, I mean, that stuck. Obviously, here we are 20 some years later talking about it. And I just remember I thought she was a badass. And I thought it was like, wow, she just I didn't think you could break the rules like that. Yeah,
0: because
2: it felt that way. Right. We all felt very much contained by the rules that we thought we were in. Did she,
0: did she face consequences for that? Like I'm like, uh, my question is, is like, that's a very, a, adult thing to do. And you strike yeah. me, you always also struck me as an adult in that program. And I just felt like a child. So when I hear her doing something like that, I'm wondering my, my, my self, my child self also goes, oh, did she get in trouble? Like, did she get kicked out? Like Did they tell her or did she do her own show? Do you know what?
2: I think if I remember right, somebody should tell point. <laughs> you guys should find her because as I remember it, she did it, and she was so strong about it that nobody could question she it. Was like nobody it. She was undeniable.
0: She was undeniable.
2: She was right, and she just determined it for herself. And I even remember—I think I talked to Jim um, Osloff about it at some point, and Jim being like, "Good for her. She's she, she. I think even though she broke the mold, which I know that, but you know, there. See, that's what's funny is." I, I had an experience there where I felt like people all around me kind of secretly in my ear were saying, break the mold, do everything you can mm-hmm. to break the mold, even though the mold was everywhere around us, right? And we were constantly in the mold, but I, I feel like I had people that were in classes that maybe were saying that to me because I was a director, but maybe wouldn't be saying that to the actors because you guys were, if they, if all the actors broke the mold, the whole <laughs> thing would come crumbling down. Yeah, maybe
1: exactly. Like exactly but i
2: think sharon was kind of support i don't want to say she was supported she just did wow. it she did something very physical i wish I could remember what it was but she did something that that felt like it was a very physics you know she was a very physical actress she did something she might have done a one-woman show I think she did
1: a one-woman know. show that's what that's what it was bubbling up Me in my too. mind as you were talking i think she did a one-woman show
0: and wow. I think, yeah, I
1: mean, I we, we talk about this all of the time. I think the majority of, especially the women, uh, were yes, we're in that that exact uh, stance that you're describing, waiting for somebody to give yeah. us approval and to tell us, yeah. yes, you're good in this way, and so that so you're going to do this. And and I also remember you breaking the mold. In turn, I mean, were you the first person who had such a beautifully decorated set in a workshop?
2: Do you know, from my very first workshop, I did my first show, I did uh, my, you know, you in the, as a director in, the, in your first year, you get to do one, one act in your third, you know, and I was, I was by my third quarter, whatever it's called, trimester, I was dying to be doing, you know, to do it, to do a show as I'm sure everybody was, but I, and I did the lesson, which maybe before you guys got there, but I did the lesson, um, which Joe loved because he was a whole Ionesco fan, and I just kind of discovered Ionesco through Joe. Anyway, I went to town, yes, and then in my second year, I did Free Will and Wanton and Lust and changed the whole room to white. It was like an all-white set, and yes, nobody had really done that. In fact, they were still using mats and <laughs> and chairs and all that. In a way, I love using. I love the concept of just using mats and chairs. And there's something very raw about that but I never had the I mean look at this is the world I live in you can see I like the stuff you know I like things I like how we I like how humans interact with things it's such a part of who I've become as director I like in some ways I think I like little things better than I like big ideas and I'm better probably at at the little ideas that get strung together that's a very Joe Sloic thing you know Um, say what you can and will about Joe because it's funny again as I came to talk to you guys I thought God, there are a lot of things that were wrong that that are that are screwed up about the theater school and and about the old fashioned kind of world that we were all in, especially not as much anymore. But in the world that we were all in, um, but I I loved Joe um, in so many ways. He was a, he was my mentor with he and Jim were kind of co mentors and represented two different things for me. But one of the things that Joe loved so much, he he'd come and he'd see a play of mine and he'd go. Um, you know, a lot of it wasn't very good. (laughs) But then he'd say, but this one moment hit me and he goes, and I will remember that moment. And I'll take that with me because it was, that was a beautiful thing, that little moment. And he got me to think about sometimes that's enough, like that's enough to, because when it comes down to it, we We all want to be greedy, and we want every single play and moment that we are a part of to be the moment for everybody all the time, but it's not sort of like that and and these rare little bits that you get that idea it that just hit me, and I thought I feel that way about plays too. I don't go away necessarily with like the whole thing. I go away with. You know, obviously the a, a very common one that a lot of people felt was with Cromer's Our Town. Like I had that memory of that the bacon and that that wall opening up and seeing this kind of oh my god he went to a whole different whole different kind of style in this moment and and that that moment is seared in my brain. I'm using probably one of the most obvious choices, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, that was something that that I loved about Joe and. Um, you know, he and and Jim, which were such a, they were such a big effect on my experience. They were sort of my yin and yang, which you're like, okay, two old white guys who came from the same tradition. You know, Jim was Joe's student. I think you guys probably know that, but so then here I am a third. And then, you know, like Lou Conti is in that. And then I come after Lou does. And the point is, is that, um, And Joe came from somebody named, well, whatever. It came from a lot of other traditions, but some other people at DePaul. But Jim at that time was in this very avant-garde place where he was really exploring everything kind of what I call outside-the-box thinking, you know. And um, meaning that he did that production of Mother Courage. Were you guys involved in that in any way? Either of you, I, I saw
0: it. I was. I think I was on crew for it. It was. I thought it was cool.
2: It was. It was exciting, right? Because it was like him, and it was also self indulgent yeah. and all the. It have a lot of cool things and a lot. But he was the first one to say, "This isn't self-indulgent." I know it. I know people will say that because I'm up there playing basketball before the whole place starts, and I'm sort
1: of oh, setting up. This- Do you remember I, that? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't remember it until that exact moment. He sure and, did.
2: And 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 Lily Shaw was sort of playing Mother Courage, and and it was very avant-garde and with these sort of weird towers that Kevin Hagen designed, and I got to be very good friends with Kevin Hagen through that whole show. And and I was I was Jim's assistant on that show. But then and then Joe directs like maybe the same year, Journey of the No no it's not Journey of the Fifth Horse, but he did do that, but then he did Time of Your Life, which was a very, I would call very inside the box production, but full of the things that I've come to love so much of these little, beautiful little relationships. Um and I think Joe was really a master at creating those. He forced them in, in a way in that he he kind of was relentless as a director. He would just sit on something and and I've had in my, yeah. And in my career, I've had to try to figure out how to not do that. Like that's been my process to try to become less like the over controlling director who must
0: micromanage. Every right. Right. Movement. Right. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I, you guys got me wound up in here. I mean, you could really wind up, and I could just talk for hours about it all. We love it. I, we we love, love it. it.
0: That's the point. Love We're it. getting people to to talk about it, and it also every time we do one of these, it brings back these memories. It opens doors for other people, uh, us. But I'm yeah. assuming it's going to do that for other students as well. And it's like, oh my yeah. god, I forgot about that. And it's a it's a sort of revisiting and, a, and an opening of a box, you know, of like, yeah, oh my yeah. god, I forgot about that. You know, some and some yeah, and sometimes.
1: It's it's a working through I think for some people I think that there's some what what I think is so interesting is when you you know because feelings are things that we experience physically and which gets stored whether you deal with them or not so that when you are able to revisit something and link it okay I have this feeling and this is what happened and now with my adult eyes I can like I, I can yeah. look at it through you know in, in a different way and make more sense of it and make more yeah. meaning from it and sometimes that means you get to also, Put it away and stop feeling, you know, like for example, uh, an actress waiting for somebody to tell her it's okay to do her art. Which is, right. which is right. our project here, our our joint project here is an answer to that. It's an it's it's yeah. a little bit of an answer to who we were, and not because of the theater school, but because of life and culture and family and and in society, and we were both very much in that role of please. Don't make any waves and just wait until somebody tells you what's okay to do. And now we're doing pretty much the exact opposite of that, which is That's right. very gratifying. But, so wait, exactly. so, uh, when you did your amazing set, so you had a, were set designers working with you on, in the workshops?
2: Yeah, I brought in a set designer from the very beginning on the, <laughs> on, on, uh, on the lesson two, um. Oh God, I wish I could remember who everybody was that worked on all those shows. Kevin worked with me a lot. Kevin Hagen and I worked together a lot on things. Kevin might've worked on The Lesson, actually, but then he didn't work on uh, Free Will and Want and Lust. Um, But he and I were the same. We we were both uh, first year MFAs, so we were like in the same classes and stuff. And, um, you know, we did, I have to tell you a funny story about something that we did that, again, was so (laughs) rule-breaking Um, that, but, but I will tell you that, that I want to, I just want to say something about before I go into this story about, you know, there's such a difference between being an actor at the school and being a director that in itself, number one, we had already a given that I was going to have a project, three projects that I was, I was going to basically choose for second year and third year, three for each of those. And then one for my first year. So I had seven projects ahead of me, all of which. In, let me let me say it by one of them I had a lot of pushback my thesis actually that Jen was in of the visit you know that that Jim was like Nick you should not do this play uh, because it's all about old people and these are all young people and shouldn't you do a play about young And I was I, of course at the time I was like I don't care I love the play it's the right play to do and now looking back I think he was really right I really shouldn't have <laughs> done a play about all old people and you know but regardless I still love the memory and all of that but Anyway, I sort of got off my tangent. You were, you were talking about a breaking a, breaking rules, what you did to break a rule. So, so we um, we were given an assignment. We had this class called, you know, Confab or something like that, collaboration, which was uh, directors and designers. Uh, and how cool it would have been if there could have been actors in that as well, but then that would have been the entire school. And that would have been a whole, you know, an enormous thing. That was one of the challenges. But anyway, in Confab, we were given an assignment to Kind of work on a play called an opera called Tristan and Isolde, uh, Isolde, I think is what it's called, and you know it's this very passionate Wagnerian opera. um, And I was working on it with Kevin. It was just the two of us, and we were given a room over in the annex to to design an idea, right? Um, So we came up with this idea of this room um, filled with water where there would be two naked bodies oh, of I remember this. Naked,
1: Yes, I right, remember this. Two naked
2: bodies and then a burning ice moon. We wanted a burning ice moon in the room. The entire room would be black and there'd be kind of crystals sparkling through the whole room. And then this ice moon would be burning and pieces of what turned out to be plastic. So many wrongs. <laughs> Uh, burning and dripping down into the water, hot burning plastic <laughs> fires burning and then stopping in the water and I'm talking a over a foot of water in this room. Now, let me tell you where this room was located. <laughs> Directly above the computer lab. Oh
1: my no god. Joke. Oh my and, god. Um,
2: while nobody told us we could do that, <clears throat> nobody told us we couldn't do it, Kevin, you know, we've we leak we we put stuff down to leak proof the room this is where kevin was really amazing he just was like we can do it and and we can and then we built this ice moon out of <laughs> it's so wrong such a so i'm sure there was something very toxic about this out of you know the the plastic things that go around a can of soda yeah. you know the little plastic the things that are killing an, yeah, animals turtles, in the ocean.
0: turtles are stuck uh-huh.
2: yeah that's right so we put them to good use we We put them inside this ice cone that was – I mean, seriously, maybe – well, I probably – it's bigger in my head, but maybe it was like 15 inches in diameter, whatever it would be, and and we um, put tons of them in there. And then when we did it, we lit the thing, and it burned into the middle slowly, and this – and it burnt these little things off, and looked like this moon was melting. This ice moon was burning and 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 freezing cold and dripping at the same time.
1: What did it and, smell like? That's what I want.
2: You know it's funny? I, let me just say this: there was other smells to be involved because the room, the water had been sitting there for a oh. few days. There was a bit of a, and then there were naked bodies in the water. One of them was. I'm, was I'm sure they are both from your class, Mary Kay. Oh. And Ben. Remember Ben? Clement. Tall? Ben, Clement. Oh, no. that's no,
1: no, no. Ben. Um, tall, tall, tall Ben. Really good looking yes. Ben. Um, yes.
2: Yeah, yes. Yes. Of course, they were both very attractive people.
1: Benjamin. Oh, yeah, this is I know who you me mean. Up. I can't remember. His I know name. who you're talking about. Yeah.
2: Well, let me tell you. Okay, this the funny thing, Scott and Mary Kay. I don't know if you remember. Mary Kay was very much like, "Yeah, I'll do it. That sounds great." And Ben was like, "We were. We. I think I maybe talked to Russell Hardin about it too." But then Ben said, "Yes, I'll do it. That's cool. I'll do it." And and we wanted them laying face up as if they were sort of dead and naked in in the in the room. And um, so then I don't know if you remember those rooms that they are connected by a little bathroom, and the only way you could get. To see the room, you couldn't see it from the outside door, but we had built it in such a way that you could only see it through the bathroom so only one person could go in and look at it at a time. And the funniest moment, i have to tell you about in a second, but so you'd walk in and then you'd walk in and you'd see this beautiful black room and you were in a dark room and this burning... <laughs> plastic moon and these bodies laying in the water and it was sort of sparkling it was it was truly maybe the most magical thing i've ever been a part of creating so joe Flood goes in he's like in there for five minutes and then he comes out and then jim goes in and john colbert goes in i mean john colbert who's now dean who i'm sure all of them were probably like this is probably very illegal that <laughs> we're doing this in so many ways burning plastic Dic- inside Dic- the room as a starter you know, water above the computer lab anyway. um, But they, but they all were like, this is stunning. And then of course, Joe was like, "Uh, I need to go back in one more time and get a good look. And Jim said to me, it's just because there's a naked woman in there. That's why he really wants to go look again. So. um, Oh my God.
1: And then Jim did that. Jim did. I mean, we did a play with water on. So I'm, I'm thinking that maybe there was a a connection when was that, that? When did that happen? That I was, was the so year after we graduated. We oh right. Uh, J P Cabrera and Eric Slater and Russell and and Mary, uh, um Marie Welty and I did the Big Funk and Jim directed, and oh, we right. did it like at a warehouse type type of situation. And oh,
2: and- was that Jaboa?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, Jaboa, exactly. I, re- I
2: mean, how can you not forget?
1: And just another bunch of just actors. Just another bunch of actors. And he. He picked this, I think it was him who picked the play, unless it was JP, it could have been JP, I'll have to ask him, or John.
0: Yeah.
1: He. It was all because of this bathtub scene huh. with, with water and a naked woman.
2: Uh, interesting, yes. Very yes. interesting.
1: Very yeah. interesting. So oh, that's cool. hilarious.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it was before Mary Zimmerman, too, by the way. I just want to just say that. Just let's put
1: it out there. Yep.
2: Mary might have been looking at our room. She might have popped over. You Honestly, know?
1: she might have because she was at Northwestern at that time, right? Uh, never I
2: think she came up with her own. But anyway, it was it was like a truly like just amazing thing. The next day, we had to clean out all the water, which we did by getting a hose and Kevin and we draped it over the window and went all the way down to the ground, and then Kevin started sucking on the water until he got to the water and then water naturally goes out. I I of course didn't know these principles of, you know, of water science, et cetera. And so all, he got all the water basically to drain out of the room by doing that. But by then also we had both walked in that water for days and then, and Ben and Mary Kay had been in that laying in their bodies (laughs) and all that. It was like a big bathtub at that point. But it was disgusting. a it was an experience. <laughs> not many people got to see it. Just our teachers, I think. You know, we heard yeah. about so, it. We
0: heard about it. We couldn't see it. I don't think we could see it. No, we yeah. couldn't see it. We heard about. I heard a lot think about they
2: it. Probably wanted anyone to see it because I mean, it really did break a lot of safety rules. Let's yeah. say that. And then, like the dean never knew, and probably Frank, who was you know in charge of all the stage manager stuff, I'm sure he would have just had a breakdown a
1: if conniption. he knew about. It. I remember we were. We were, there was something about keeping yeah, it on secret. the down low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, do you still work with, does Kevin still, is he still in the area?
2: Do You know, Kevin is still in the area. And um, he he's become a director himself, working a lot at, you know, worked a lot at Shattered Globe. And um, he became a company member, I think, at Shattered Globe. Um, but I think he's probably working less and less over the past 10 years and so he we had our big reunion um recently it's sort of it's sort of a sad question because we were best of friends for so many years and then because just because it's complicated being in a company and he was part of timeline and being in a company together and uh, just all the drama that happens around being in a company as you probably know and it's it's so we ended up not ever becoming bad friends, just kind of our friendship kind of dwindled away. He lives in Evanston, not very far at all from where I live. Um, but I don't see him. I saw him at our reunion, like we did a, for our 20th, Timeline's 20th. He came to the reunion and so did Pat and who was part of the original group. And so th- that was cool. We had such a great time. And it's it's just, it's it's funny. It's It's sad how some of those relationships... Um drift away, and it's one and that was so important to my certainly to the early years of my formation as a director it was a huge that was a really huge
1: so uh, collaboration you you started timeline
2: i did with who I did. so I was at the theater school. it's so funny all these people that still and I- interconnect to this um I wasn't at the theater school we graduated we were about a year out, so it was ninety seven I graduated ninety six it was the spring of ninety seven and I kind of, I had, I had um, done one play my, my first year, the summer of my first year, this guy, Eric Kirshner, who was the other director at the time, who then quit and was like, Hey, let's quit and start our own theater company and just do that. And I was like, cause he's and his whole notion, Eric was much more entrepreneurial than I was. He was like, what do we need the theater school for? We can just do this on our own. And it was like, no, I'm, I'm too much. I'd only directed one, one at that point. And I was like, I'm afraid of that. I need I need some foundation here. And he didn't feel that at all. He didn't feel like he needed that. So interesting. But anyway, Eric and I had started a theater company and we did our first two plays uh at at the timeline space. Interesting enough, European it was European reps space at um, that time. And I did a play called The Killing Game. Of course another UNESCO play it's- what the audiences want is some Ionesco, as you well know, and um, and the other and he did a Shakespeare, he did um, uh, uh, um, he did um the Winter's Tale, a Winter's Tale, and we did it that summer. I'm sorry, I'm so tangential. We did it that summer in Chicago when 600 people died. Oh, you right, that the heat wave. Summer.
0: That's right. Yeah, the heat wave that. summer.
2: We did it in a theater that had no air conditioning oh. at all. And he was doing *Winter's Tale*, which, as you can imagine, needs to be set kind of in the winter. And I'm doing this play about a plague that's killing everybody. Red Orca just did it like two years ago, a year ago. And it's and and that are all also die, you know, whatever. So it was off. It was an awful, <laughs> awful hot, and nobody wanted to come, especially nobody wanted to come to *Winter's Tale* because it sounded long, and it was. Yeah. And uh, at least the Inesco was only an hour and a half or something, so I got maybe. You know, if I got 30 people, he got 10 people or whatever it was. But anyway, um, that's another sidetrack. So back to the main question, which now I've lost all thread. Yeah. So then, um, so that was my, after my first year, then I kind of had this notion, God, I'd really like to do this again to really be a part of starting a company. So 1997, I I call up, the first person I call is, is Lily Shaw. Because I call Lily because she seems like, for all the actors and people, artists I know, she seems like the most margin-charged person I know. You know, Lily was like the one that's like, you know, she was very tough. And matter of fact, she kind of, oh. again, like she, she, do you guys remember Lily at all?
1: Yeah, but is this the MFK? Um,
2: no. Okay. Interesting. It was all right around the same time. So, no, but she, but she was just... She was just so in charge that I thought, I gotta I'm gonna get together with Lily. I didn't have it written in a little like journal that I have that I'm we met at a bar called Glassgots, which is on Halstead. She and I met and I sat down with her and I said, I wanna start a theater company. Are you interested? And she was like, No, I am not interested. And I was like, Oh, okay. And she's like, I don't wanna be a part, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna just be another theater company and whatever. And I was like, Oh my god, I really wanna do it. And she's like, Well, what do you want what do you want to be special about your theater company? And I was like, well, we're all going to be really good actors and directors and I'm going to direct a lot of amazing plays. And she's like, you do know that that isn't a thing. Like that's not an idea and it's not a mission and it's not. And she said, what, what are, what's going to make you separate from the other 300 small theater companies in this town? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. And she's, she literally asked me the question that has really changed the course of, of timeline too, which was What else do you love in your life besides theater? Which is a funny question because I often say, huh, I can't think of anything that I love besides theater. But I love, but I but I do. And one of the other things I love, as you can somewhat tell here, is I love antiques. And I love, I love, um, I love them because I love finding out about history and I love understanding why something was built the way it was. And I love opening up an old book and seeing a, a, you know, a little, uh, uh, something subscribed or uh, uh, written in there. And um, anyway, so I, 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 and I love reusing old things and finding new ways to purpose them and all that. So um, she said, well, there's your theater company. You, you've got a theater company that's about history. That's about, that's, that's what you're talking about is history. And I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) Let me get your beer and we'll see you later. And like, that was the start. That's the germ of, timelines you know plays inspired by history that connected to today's social political issues the second half of that was a lot of formation by a lot of other people the only part i brought to the group was plays inspired by history wow. um and let me say that so then about two weeks later we met at susan lee's basement you guys remember susan oh yeah Money? so i assistant directed for susan on a couple things and i said susan we have this meeting and i'm inviting some co- potential company members and then a couple other people that may be supporters, that kind of thing. There were about 12 of us, I think at the first meeting. And um, it was the original five company members and me and a few other friends um, that maybe that at the time had no money, but literally all I could think was someday you're going to have money. And it turns out one of them was on our board for many years afterwards and all that. So uh, anyway, the five were all there. And that was uh, Pat Tiedemann, uh, PJ. Juliet, Kevin, and a guy named Brock Goldberg. Do you yes! guys remember Brock?
1: Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Brock, I do. I right?
2: a the name to bring back some memories, right there. Um, Brock Goldberg. And so the uh, and the idea was Brock? Kevin would kind of oversee design. The other three were actors, but I also knew that Juliet and Pat and PJ all had a lot more in them than just being an actor. They were, they had an entrepreneurial quality. They also, they were amazing. Smart writers and um, thinkers and people that I just had loved at Depaul, um, and you know there were a lot of actors who I had adored, and so it didn't end up just becoming about which actors do I like because I oftentimes tell people, and this is so true, the first time I saw PJ, I thought he was just a hopeless actor. I mean, I just thought he was just a terrible actor, and he and we joke about it a lot because his and then he went away between his third year and his fourth year. I saw him do three plays his third year, and I was like, oh, my God, each one <laughs> seems worse than the last. But then he went away, and the summer after, – I'm so on so many tangents, but P.J. came back after his his third year, and I often said he must have had a summer of love. He denies that, but that's what I think might have happened. But he came back and he did this role uh, – he auditioned for John um, Jenkins for this uh, – oh, God, I wish I could – the characters like Elmwood peach or something like that for
0: which play? Oh,
2: oh God. Um, Jen, Jen. I can only remember bits and pieces of things. Jen. Ellis? Blonde. Ellison Blonde. Jen, Jen Ellison was in it. it. It's a, it's a play by, uh, who wrote, um, uh, Blue House of Blue Leaves. Oh, John Guare. Uh, the, the Guare play that Jenkins directed. Do you guys remember that? Play? Oh
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: What's it called? What's it called? Do you remember what it's called? I can't I remember.
1: Have no clue, but- I know and I came time. back
2: to audition for that. He was brilliant yeah. for this audition. And I'm, I'm down so, such far down a rabbit hole Then I did that fall. I was doing um, elephant man and I cast Marty as the elephant man. And then I needed somebody extra, you know how it comes out and you're like, Oh crap. I didn't, somebody dropped out or somebody, something happened and I needed an extra actor for that. And PJ Filled in as like one of the circus kind of yeah. freak kind of yep. things, and um and we became friends. And then the next show I did was Free Will and Lust, in which he played the lead, and he was great. I mean, it was just great. So we we became very fast friends because I, I literally I like did a one eighty on PJ. I probably would have put him at the top of my do not cast list, and then all of a sudden I was like, I must work with you more. And I just loved his the way he thought and how he, um, he, he was, PJ was so committed at that point. I mean, he still is, but he was the kind of young actor that was like, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I want to be better. And I, will try anything. Tell me what to do.
1: And so I think, anyway, I, we are. Yeah, I think he also like was a late bloomer and he was sort of late to understanding himself and who, what he wanted right. out of life and who, you know, who he was as a person.
2: It's so interesting. It's as if you set me up. He and Juliet, who are the two people that are still part of the company with me of that original group, were really the two hardest to convince to be in the company. PJ's career in '97, he had just done a show at Writers. He'd just done a show at Northlight. His his career was quickly like taking off, and his response was like, "Why would I do this? I'm I'm doing just fine with my career and um and you know and And Juliet, I think had not gotten married yet, but was, you know, I think she was getting ready to get married and I knew she wanted to have a family. And I I think both of them were like, I'm not convinced. I don't know if this is a good idea. And everybody else, Kevin was like, 100% Ian Brock was like, nobody's ever asked me to be in anything. I'll join you for whatever. Uh, And Pat was really excited about it. I think overall too, but PJ and Juliet weren't. And, it took a lot of convincing with PJ. He says, and I think that this is what I remember too, that the thing that convinced him was saying, let's create something that's bigger than our individual careers, something that will outlast us, something that's our legacy, something that isn't just about how long I can get my, out of my, car- my own career, but out of how long can we get out of something that would go beyond us. Wow. Um, and, you know, that was a nice idea at the time, but I'd say if you really asked me, like, do you think this will actually happen? I probably would have said, uh, maybe 50, 50, if at best, you know, that that we'd actually have been able to create something that would last say 20, we're up to almost 24 years coming up on 24 um, years. And, um, so that was the, and PJ said, that's what really sold him. That idea of like, um, something bigger than his own career. And he gave over to it from the beginning and never turned back. And same with Juliet. And in a way I left timeline early on, you know, because I then of course get a job at the court theater uh, a year. I don't know in that next year. And, um, and I'm like trying to juggle both. And I became associate artistic director to Charlie at the court. And I'm trying to juggle both being an artistic wow. director, of one and another. And Charlie's paying me and I'm getting benefits and you know, the whole thing. And I finally, and I could tell that, that it was becoming a problem basically. I don't even know if they said that, but I I felt for myself like I can't do this. And so I ended up leaving Timeline and eventually kind of PJ ended up taking over Timeline. And um, so and and then I was at court for three years and then I ended up leaving the court and going and doing other things but but then always staying but i was always still connected at timeline. i was always i directed in every season and i was still very much around but it was uh it was different until then several years later i sort of came back full-time again as a full-time company member and then full-time as a staff member pj hired me i called a pj and it was like you must find a way to hire me back please because i was in the corporate world for 10 years and i was like i can't do this any longer so um so he hired me back and so and now we're this very funny couple because you know, like I said, he was this kid when, when I brought PJ in, he seemed like, as you said, he was he was very much a late bloomer. PJ looked like a 15-year-old yeah. throughout most of college. He looked like a child. He looked
0: like Alfalfa. Like remember
2: He did look like Alfalfa. That's so true. I never thought of that. Yeah, and he was like this scrawny right. kid. Yeah. Um, but you know, in a way, he's come so much into his own. Uh, in in every way, like he's just he he's one of those people that sort of I think gets better with age. In, and I like he looks better with age. I don't yeah. have that lucky myself, but he really does. And so um, anyway, uh, yeah. He, I, but also he also just came into that job very quickly and um, jumped into it and was and was brilliant from the beginning and really is ultimately responsible for the success of the wow. company, much more than I am. I'm only responsible for starting it. And I think he and the rest of them are really responsible for the success of it in, in those challenging early years.
1: Did you keep the same uh, bold aesthetic? Um, I mean, has that been your signature in directings ever since?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I think the what, what I've definitely tried to keep is that one, one element that I think I always did keep was a sense that, the world of design had to be as important as the world of the actors. You know, the, the world of the actors inhabitants always was an, as important to me as the actors. And that's, that was very much against. I thought at least at the time of even how DePaul was teaching and how Chicago theater was thinking, I'd go to plays all the time. And I'd be like, these are these amazing actors, but they're working in sort of this kind of crappy environment that doesn't have anything to do with what they're doing or that it just felt like flimsy walls that felt like an after afterthought. And so always from the beginning, that became a very important aspect to me, whether I succeeded or not. I don't know. But 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 what I know is that that's that mantra sort of like the design of the world has to be has to have as much focus and interest as the as the actors do. Um, there are many people who would probably just disagree with that, and a lot of people that don't don't work that way at all. I think there's theater companies that are literally built off of not thinking that way. You know, right. where the actor is so much more. I mean, I guess I'd say it's 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 complicated because it it, may, it makes it sound like somebody doesn't care about design, and that's not the case. But I'd say that there are companies in Chicago where the actor is three quarters of the interest, and a quarter of it is the design. You know but I like to always try to think that, that, that that's more half and half. So yes, that's always stayed. Um, the one thing that's probably changed the most over the years is I was very, you know, I really had this notion that a director's job was to be sort of an auteur that that had all these big big plans and big ideas and really controlled everything. Like, and and thankfully, thankfully, I began to lose that concept hopefully fairly early on like the first one of the first productions at timeline, I was very into like mind games. And so we did gaslight, you know, this, this play, um, uh, by Patrick Marber, I think. And, um, and PJ and Juliet were both in it. David Parks was in it. And I had them all playing gaslighting games behind the scenes, um, because I was so psychotic. I mean, I was literally too, you know, you get, there's this potential as a director to get a kind of God complex. And I guess in a way I had an element of that and I they I had them playing these weird mind games and to the point that literally it almost got very bad. Like, you know, there was, <laughs> I can't, I, I, I hate to even admit them because they were so screwed up. I can just look back at it and think, I understand how young directors sometimes get Caught up in yeah. in kind of screwing around with people's lives because because you think that the art is everything and you forget that there are actual living humans and people that have feelings and that have all these you know and so I I like to think that I've grown from that and my company members all tease me relentlessly <laughs> about things that I did back then and um, but I I learned quickly at least that that those kind of games were. Really wrong, and were not helpful, and but you know I was trying to be an experimenter, and we did a lot of movement to music in the early days, and you know, and so I brought a lot of that into my early work, and then some of it stayed, and some of it filtered out, and um, and I just tried to become more of an adult eventually, (laughs) (laughs) less of a you know a seemingly a you know a director type so whatever. you
1: you had strong uh, relationships with your mentors do you mentor anybody now I,
2: you know I, I I have a couple people I think um, um, that I've that I've worked with you know it's so weird to, to call somebody your your um, pr- protege or mentee or something because you kind of want them to say that of you but a couple of people have told me that I've sort of Helps them in that way. One is Connor Wilson, who's a young director from Chicago who's now out directing, um, well, you know, until the pandemic, was out um, overseeing the Harry Potter in San Francisco wow. as the resident director on that, which is like for a for a guy in his early 30s, he's like making bank and doing a real serious, you know, like Broadway level kind of thing out there uh, as, as like resident director, as somebody who was managing the show and stuff. And So Connor's one, and there's probably, um, you know, there are a couple of people in my life, um, Brittany Veratia and Lauren Sheely, who are both interns of mine, and then have now become like, they've become like my right hand in so many projects. Uh, they, I think they've both assisted me, uh, Brittany, maybe they both even stage managed a show or two, but then, uh, and then um, they worked with me for years on the gala at Timeline. Uh, And they literally, in some ways, if I'm gone, if I die next year, they'd be the ones that would have to take over the gala because they know everything. They've been doing it with me for like seven years and um, they become just really almost more friends than they are anything else. But but they're part of my kind of growth process as well, too. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow good question though i i don't i think teachers get to be that mentor role a little more easily because you have this kind of you know serious amount of time with them and then joe joe for me and jim too both of them stayed around and and joe was there for my entire career until he died essentially until he moved away and died um and even you know and then i i watched joe really grow old and uh, it was so sad. You know, Joe came to see, uh, I think it was History Boys. That was this very successful play that I did. And he was so excited. He loved, you know, as, as all the teachers did, they loved their successful moments with their students and their famous students and all that. They, you know, Bella used to love to, you know, they would like argue about who had the more famous student in some ways. Um, but it was a big moment and Joe was coming to see it. And, but he was getting older and he got lost on the way to the oh. theater and kind of had a melt. Like a little breakdown, and and his wife couldn't. He didn't have cell phone, and his wife couldn't get Pat. So I was calling Pat. This is at like eight thirty, and the show had started at eight. He ended up showing up at nine, flustered, and like it was the first time I I saw him as a little old man versus as my mentor, um, mentor and incredibly powerful teacher. You know. Um, so anyway, yeah, they he and Jim and Jim and I still talk quite a bit, and. Um, yeah i it, it's just interesting how tables turn and what what happens with them and and um, how time changes all of that. but they they were both really you know special to me, even though again, I'm sure some of the trauma that both of you hear about and/ or faced at the theater school was due to one or the other. I'm sure I know that. and it's it's it I was a I was very privileged to be in the position I was in and um, and in some ways to get the best of them, I think. Uh, and not the worst of them, but the best of them, and and I, um, I, I, they, I treated them both like kind of fathers yeah. for that time, especially. Yeah. So. There is a
1: very, there is a very familial relationship about theater always, and I guess it's probably true for film and TV. Just the, you know, the, the intense amount of hours you spend being vulnerable. Even as a director, you're being vulnerable in some ways, opening yourself yeah. up to other people. It, it, it does really create these. And you could make the argument that it's trauma bonds and it's war buddies, and maybe there's a little bit of that too. But um, no, it's, it's something that's very special, I think, about this particular craft is the way it's so personal, which is also why there's always a lot of, no pun intended, drama in theater companies, because it's, yeah. it's very personal.
2: You know, and and especially at the time, I think this has slightly changed now. But it was almost a boot camp aspect to the theater school at the yeah. time. Like break everybody down, see who can handle it, and those that can't handle it will let them go. And then those that can't handle it felt even more like, okay, I'm in. Okay, I'm in again. I'm and and then you. It was it was you know cultish in a way and um and so that's has an unhealthy quality about it but at the same time it makes you all hold on to each other and then i mean look at who i ended up choosing to hold on to for my entire life's right. career is people from the theater school right. you know and, they, and they're the people that are my every day my every day juliet and pj are part of my every single day
0: that's amazing so uh, that's
2: cool. all because of all because of that experience that's that we so all cool. went through together. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W R I T one. That's Undeniable right without the E one. Thanks.